0: Uh, Most of you are aware at this time that the gospel according to John has a great emphasis on the Passion Week of Christ. Uh, Virtually half of the book has to do with the last week of Jesus' worldly ministry and then his trial and his arrest and his trial and crucifixion and uh, execution and his resurrection and some things that take place uh, after that. but we have been taking our time going through here. We, I mean, we started on, you know, the, the meeting of, well, of Jesus uh, with the disciples in the upper room and all the things that he said to them many, many chapters ago. And we find ourselves uh, this morning in chapter uh, 19. And like I said before, what I'm trying to do is time things so that we will come to John, the, in the gospel according to John, uh, the resurrection chapter when we get there. So forgive me if you think I'm moving a little slowly here. <laughs> uh, but uh, I guess I am at times. But anyway, chapter 19. Uh, remember that Jesus has been arrested and interrogated by Pilate uh, You know before this, and we've considered this over the last few weeks. Uh, things Yet to be a little bit more intense as we uh, read in chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to to be, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at All, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So, Pilate, uh, when, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day on pre- of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Just to warn you, we're not going to get through quite all of that this morning. (laughs) I mean, obviously, uh, lots of material there just some, some things I want to remind us of, and one of the things is this, is just remember this, that the Jewish means of execution, according to the Bible, was not crucifixion, it was stoning. And if you're familiar with the, the narratives of the early church, you'll remember that Stephen, the, the, one of the first Christians to be martyred, who was also a, one of the first deacons in the church, was stoned to death. Some people wonder why in the world that Jesus was not stoned according to the scriptures, that this was the legitimate legal means of applying supreme punishment to people. Well, if you know anything about your Bible, you, and, and, and as we were studying through John, that there's, a, there's a particular uh, narrative in there that helps you and I understand this, and that is this, and that is the thing that is projected through the Scriptures is this, that Jesus had to be lifted up, not, not beaten down as someone who was being stoned, but one who's lifted up as the serpent was in the wilderness in the days of Moses. Remember that story? This is one of the principal and primary reasons why Jesus had to be turned over to the Romans because their means of execution was crucifixion, lifting people up on a cross. And remember Stephen, again, that one of those first deacons was stoned to death by the Jews. They didn't crucify him, they stoned him to death. But just, you know, just a measure that we find here through all the Bible is God's absolute control of the situation, circumstances. You know, some people looking at this from the outside, they may have the idea that God has absolutely lost control of this situation. That Jesus is actually going to be crucified because God can't put an end to it. God cannot stop it. But we need to understand something, that people that believe things like that just simply do not know God. We understand that everything that is transpiring here, everything that's taking place is doing so according to the perfect will and purpose of God established at the very beginning of time. No surprises to him, no surprises to Jesus at all, even though I would imagine that the disciples and other people around him are as surprised as they possibly can be at this time. Have you ever heard theologians talk about what is called the humiliation of Christ? Maybe some of you have and some of you haven't, but it's just a doctrine that describes all the humiliation that Christ endured in order to fulfill all the different aspects of his earthly, worldly ministry. Some people think it refers particularly, and maybe to the greatest extent, to his death on the cross, But I want to say to you this morning that it involves a whole lot more than that. Where did the humiliation of Christ begin? What I would say is this, is it began when he took upon himself the likeness of a man. Almighty, holy God. Taking upon himself. Personhood. As a man. In other words, when Jesus did what he did, he was making a major step downward, willfully, voluntarily, not being imposed upon him, not being forced upon him by the Father or the Holy Spirit or the people of God or anybody else, willfully, purposely entering into humiliation. The humiliation of God taking upon himself, the person of a man. Jesus was also born into a very humble estate. He, didn't, he was born into the palace. He was born into humble means. a family that was very is very well known to people in the world today because of the christmas narrative more than anything else but more or less obscure family not very highly regarded We can say today that he was ridiculed and rejected by many, and if not just many, most. Jesus has been suffering the humiliation cast upon him by these Jewish leaders from the very beginning of his ministry. He lived and traveled by humble means. The only time that we have any mention of Jesus ever riding on a donkey was into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He walked almost everywhere he went. Sometimes he rode in a fishing boat going across the Sea of Galilee. except Other than that, he was walking on foot tens of miles, twenties of miles, thirties of miles. Jesus probably walked more in six months than you do in your whole lifetime by a long shot. All of this stuff we've been studying in the Gospel of John, his arrest and his trial, how humiliating. The mockery that has taken place. Now he's going to endure physical beatings, severe, unimaginable physical beatings for you and I to even begin to picture. Something the likes of which you nor I have ever experienced in this lifetime. And then there is the cross to come, nailed to a tree and lifted up so the whole world could see. And one of the most surprising is almost the wholesale rejection of the Christ by the Jews. The only reason I bring this to your attention is so that, you, that we can help keep things in perspective here. Because very often when you talk about the humiliation of Christ, people are thinking about his trial and his, his, uh, the crucifixion, etc. But I just want you to understand it, it encompasses a whole lot more than that. That his whole life was bound in Humiliation. I don't know, how about, how know about you, but I really don't care for when people humiliate me. <laughs> Does anybody here run to humiliation? Does anyone one run out the front door of their house on Monday morning and say, somebody in my neighborhood or somebody that can hear what I'm saying, please, 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 please come and humiliate me today. I would love for somebody to do that. Could you do that for me? But I just want you to understand something. When Jesus came, he embraced the concept of utter and absolute humiliation at the hands of people. It had everything to do with his whole ministry. As we read these words this morning, he is steeped to his eyeballs in humiliation before the Romans and before the Jewish people, in particular the Jewish leaders, they began to believe that they've got the best of him. Pilate could have let him go at this point. We've considered what Pilate's motivation was, and we can't say for certain, but more than likely, it just simply had to do with the fact that they had there had been a number of uprisings in. Uh, Judea during his reign and he got into deep weeds with Caesar as a result of it and he's afraid that something like that's going to happen again and he's going to suffer as a result of it. We've seen that he's tried to appease these Jewish leaders a number of times. But now he gives in. scourging. Just remember the Jewish leaders didn't go in where Jesus was taken now. that they, they took him away from them and they scourged him and they bring him back because they didn't want to get too close and engage with these Romans because it was Passover week and they didn't want to defile themselves. Can you imagine? They don't want to defile themselves if they get ready to crucify Christ. The pilot takes him inside, and they flog him. When I was a kid, I was pretty rotten. And my parents fully believed in spare the rod and spoil the child. (laughs) So I got frequent spankings. And I can remember one time my dad, he said to me, uh, he said, either you can go to bed, which I hated to do and they knew it. You know, go to bed at 6 o'clock or something instead of your regular 8 o'clock bedtime or or whatever. But this particular time he said this, he said, I'm going to give you an option. You can go to bed right now or I'm going to give you a man-sized whipping. And I'm thinking, what in the world is a man-sized whipping? <laughs> and what it amounted to was this. is Normally, my parents whipped us with a belt that was folded in half. According to him, a man-sized whipping, it was a full-length belt. So initially, I went to bed. <laughs> Because I knew I didn't want one of those man-sized whippings, but I laid there and I couldn't go to sleep. And it's like I want to get up and watch TV or whatever. You know, can I just endure just a few seconds of of discomfort to get out of bed? So I got up and went to him and said, "I changed my mind. I want the whipping." And that was the last time I ever asked for a man-sized whipping. My whole point here is we've all experienced something like this. I would imagine all of us got spankings when we were little. Uh, You understand that the culture today thinks things like that are just archaic and barbaric and this, that, and the other. And there are lots of kids that will grow up today that will never have a beating in their whole lifetime. But I hope that we all understand that what Jesus endures here is or what we have endured through beatings is nothing in comparison to what Jesus endures here. He's not getting just a little spanking. He is a, getting a beating that very often people eventually died as a result of. That was not an uncommon thing. The Romans' means of punishing. They called it Verberatio. They had a special name for it. They used a whip called a phlegrum. It had three leather tongs that were nearly three feet long, so I hope you don't think it was this this little short thing, that these thongs on it were three feet long. And tied into each one of those thongs was little bits of metal and stone tied into the thongs the whole purpose and notice and they were about three feet long so it's not this little short thing the whole purpose there was so that it when they hit you it wrapped all the way around your torso it wasn't just whipping you on your back and those metal pieces in in sharp pointed rocks would embed themselves in your flesh for a purpose. And the purpose is that when they jerked the flagrum back, it ripped your tissue. The purpose of this was to inflict the maximum amount of pain upon these victims that they possibly could. They say that it was not unheard of, that by the time they were finished, that some of the internal organs were actually showing through, in particular, the intestines. There were small lead weights also tied on those thongs to give it weight. So that when it hit, it was moving at a rapid velocity, causing bruising, etc. There was a member of the, they had a scourging team that had like three or four members in it. And each one of them had a particular responsibility in carrying out these executions. One of them stood beside with an abacus. The whole purpose was to count each time they scored Jesus because they couldn't go over 39 the maximum number was 39 The purpose of all this was to bring Jesus as close to death as they could without actually killing him. There's a very good chance that but with even without the cross that Jesus would have died from his scourging. People did it very often. By the final blow he is losing a lot of blood. And you can imagine that he is in what we would describe to be absolutely unbearable pain, unimaginable pain, possibly in the early stages of shock. And I just want to bring attention to this, that Jesus was not the only one of our forefathers who experienced this. The Apostle Paul will write, five times, five times, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 less, less one. Paul himself endured what Jesus endures here five times. The Romans had made suffering into an art. Now, become, now comes more and more of the mockery. They fashion a crown of thorns. I've always pictured this as being with some kind of vine that had thorns on it, but they're saying more than likely it was something called black thorn, which is a bush, but every branch has a, very, a one-inch spike at the end of it. So I want you to picture this as not being those little curved thorns that we might find on a rose bush. These are like weapon-sized thorns, every one of them. And we understand the mockery behind it. You claim to be a king, so therefore we are going to give you a crown. Every king has to have a crown, right? And they don't only place it on his head... They push it down on his head. See, all of this adds to the humiliation of Christ at the hands of men. Not only physical abuse, but also oral abuse. Say they began to mock him, calling him the king of the Jews in a sarcastic way. Is this as if to say, how can you possibly call yourself a king when we have just done to you what we've done to you? And we understand this. We have a picture that the Romans didn't have and even the Jewish leadership didn't have at this point. And we understand this, that Jesus is in fact not just a king, he is the king of kings. But we know that his kingdom is not confined to the strengths of this world. That his kingdom is in this world now. You and I are part of that kingdom here in this world. But his, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. It has always been. There's no beginning to it, and there will no, be no end to it. His is first and foremost a heavenly kingdom where he sits with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and they rule over all that they have created. Caesar and Pilate had power and authority in the physical realm, but that is where it ended. Jesus' his power and authority only began in the physical world, if it even began there. That's actually not even a good phrase. His, his, his kingdom had the beginning of heaven. It only entered into the physical realm, into this world, when Jesus came and was born. And his physical presence continues on in this world, in the persons of you and me. He is with us. His spirit inhabits us, his spirit enables us. They struck him with their hands, according to Luke chapter 22, verse 63. To everything else up to this point had been done somewhat at a distance, I guess you might say. But now they're getting up close and personal to him. So you have to be very close to actually strike someone with your fist. You can't do it from a distance. There's in his face, if you want to put it that way. You feel the force of your blow transfer directly to your victim. We've all felt that before, and we've also been on the receiving end. Flesh contacting flesh, people contacting people. Pilate at this point has Jesus taken back out to the Jewish mob. And it appears to me as though what is going on here is this, is the reason for it is is he's hoping, it seems maybe, that once they see the mangled and bloody body of Jesus, they will conclude that he suffered enough. That they would no longer seek his death. But reality is this, is it seems only to increase their passion for his death. Their desire for his death. They will settle for nothing less than his death. And I want to remind us that all of this is done in perfect harmony with the predetermined plan and will of God. Remember when we were talking about Jesus praying in the upper room and we said that on that last night that he prayed for every believer. You need to understand something, that that there's a sense in which you and I should be able to sense our presence there almost. Because we know that Jesus was there for us. You follow what I'm saying? In other words, we can't look upon this and just have this idea that this man came and he was executed and this, that, and the other after being whipped and and whatever. It has to go way deeper than that with us. We need to take it personally, just like Jesus takes it personally. For two reasons. Number one, because I contributed to all of this, that Jesus is taking this whipping. He's going to be crucified for my sins, not for the sins of Caesar. Not for the sins of Pilate, but for my sins. This should be something that's very personal to you and I. Not something that we look at from a distance and not make the connection with. Psalm 53, 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief. You understand that the Lord is only using the Romans, he's only using the Jewish people to bring about what he has predetermined is going to take place. that the real punishment that Jesus is going to endure is going to be inflicted upon him directly by God the Father. In other words, we look at the physical suffering of Jesus and we are just dumbfounded by it, but I want you to understand something, it wasn't just the external suffering, it was the internal suffering that was even more intense and more significant. We need to understand something, and that is that the full measure of the penalty for our sins, past, present, and future, was poured out by God the Father, on God the Son, on the cross, and the events leading up to it. Nothing more, but certainly nothing less. let's just face this, we cannot begin to comprehend what is going on here, really. It's beyond our ability to understand it. And ultimately, what I would say to you is this, is that that ultimately it's our inability to understand how any person can love enough to endure something like this for people like us. Man, when we look at the cross, we should see two things. We should see the evilness and the wickedness of man, but at the same time, the glory and the power and the magnitude of the love of God for sinners like us. If you're not amazed every time you think about these things, then there's something wrong with you. You don't have a clue. You just don't understand. Maybe, maybe you're beginning to understand, but you don't really have much of an understanding in all of what God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have done for you. And me. In any other context, it would be absolutely unbelievable You need to understand something else, too, and that is these floggings were designed to get people to admit guilt, even if they weren't guilty. Kind of with a promise, you know, you just, you just underwent this beating. We're not going to beat you anymore if you would just sit now and just confess that you did what we've accused you of doing. What do you think most people did? Probably a lot of people confess their sins that they never committed. Crimes they never committed just to stop the beating. I would imagine it's very quite likely that Pilate had never seen anyone flogged to this degree who was not willing to confess to just about anything at this point if they promised to stop. He is probably absolutely amazed that Jesus is continuing to maintain his innocence. He has never seen anything like this, ever. I mean, what would you do? You just admit to this out or the other, then we'll stop. But if you don't, you're going to get more. What would you do? Being in the condition that Jesus is in at this point. So I would imagine that Pilate really, he brings him back out there and and puts him on display. And I would imagine one of the reasons, he's hoping, they say, well, that's enough. He's suffered enough. We'll be satisfied with that. That's not good enough. They will settle for nothing short of Jesus' death. Why? Why? They hated him, because he showed the world who these religious leaders really were. He exposed their, their immoral practices. He exposed the fact that so many of these who really claimed, who claimed to be God's representatives in the world were absolutely everything but that in reality. They wanted to put an end to Jesus, period, to shut him up, period, and they were willing to sell their very souls at this point to do that. They are consumed with hatred. hatred of a man who had never done anything to them except challenge their authority at times they wanted him dead because that was the only way to shut him up did they succeed (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we know the rest of the story, right? We know that Jesus is, in fact, crucified, and Jesus actually does die, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we know that's not the end of the story. He's resurrection, resurrected. And you and I are here today because of the realities of those truths. think about this all of those people who conspired to have Jesus murdered they know the truth now they've all long since died and when they died they stood before the judgment seat of Christ <laughs> they know the error of their ways but you know what you would think that that that, that even that would be that would be something that would, would finally bring these people to their knees before Our Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But do you understand something? That even that, their hearts are so hardened by sin that even that won't do it. Where they are right now, they understand the truth. They're waiting the day of judgment. And they're waiting and suffering. But even now, even now, knowing what they know and seeing what they've seen, experiencing what they've experienced, they still deny Jesus Christ as Lord and King. Now that's an amazing thing, but we need to understand something. That's a measure of just how dark and hardened the human heart is. That's how dead to God people are. And we know this, that the suffering they're going through now is an eternal suffering. It's not going to ever end. Jesus was for a time and then there was an end of it. They will suffer the full measure of God's wrath. And in the breast of all eternity, they still will not repent. How hard is the human heart how fallen in sin are people these things are a measure of that all of us I would imagine we've struggled with our sin I struggled with my sin I'm sure that Lloyd and Lucy has struggled with theirs I know that Chris and Debbie have they've shared some things with me and you know and etc. And, and a lot of the rest of you we've struggled with our own sin, right? That's it's a struggle that's going to go on for now. And I want to encourage you in that struggle. Be in the struggle. Don't give up. Don't let into it. Don't give into it. Fight with tooth and nail as much as you possibly can to move beyond where you are. It's so easy to slip back into old habits. I sure with you this just a few weeks ago. I was somewhere, and I did something, I hurt my finger, something like that. And the stuff that came out of my mouth, I couldn't even believe it was still in there. But it was, because it came out. And I was just glad as I could be that none of you were around to hear it. Not even Lori, because I don't want those people to think lesser of their pastor. Because I'm supposed to be this holier person than everybody else is. Other people might get away with that kind of stuff on occasion, but pastors don't. But you need to understand some things, and one of those is this: is every pastor is just like you are. They're not special people. They're not, not people that God has just kind of whisked their sin completely away from them and all that. But you need to understand that pastors still struggle with sin just like you do. But the important thing is that we're all struggling with it. Not that we ever give up and say, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. Ooh, ah, uh, I just give up. Sin is in us, and let me tell you, sin does not die in easy death. We need to be engaged in the battle. of putting sin to death in us. Seriously. Don't give up. Some of you have. But I'm telling you this morning, don't give up. Live for Christ. And live for what is good and right and wholesome in the eyes of God. And at the same time, Remember that you're forgiven absolutely, completely, and fully because of what Jesus endured and has done for you. Now there's peace in that, right? And I hope you know that peace. I hope you understand that peace. That our faith in him has made all things right. It has made all things good. We're just not perfected yet. That I don't know about you, when these things happen, you know what I thirst for? I thirst for the day when that will no longer be part of my picture at all, ever. That's something worth... Wanting after, and we will have it because God has promised us we will. Amen. Praise team is.